You're listening to an ACA podcast. Air full of chest. Face all that makes a mean impression. Plead a pants in the best way possible. A visual that rhythm's been tested. Pain and spot of passing fat fashion, think it's done like that. Well, she does it like a Carmen manifested. Rennet is the air for all she cares. And all she's got the coveted breath you ingested. Hi, everybody. Um, I want to acknowledge that we're on unceded Wurundjeri land before I begin the formal part of my little presentation. Thank you for coming. Um, I wanna uh, acknowledge what's happening on, <clears throat> I wanna acknowledge the Japarung Embassy who are facing some bullshit right now. Um, you're really close to the art. Move forward, yeah, cool. <laughs> uh, I wanna acknowledge the role that the arts can play in fucking with white supremacy and stuff. Thank you for coming. Heavier homes, justice is a birthright if you're made right. And it was bold to be touched by your crying over canned soup. These bold blood rights are coal, promised from gold and air fryer, burning the roof down. John, a John, a Hindu, John M. Trying to turn a death hole into a glimmer. Truly, 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 it feels like making love through you. Maybe, 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 maybe. Waits untold, carry you alone. Lifting up heavenly homes And I was told we would be all alone That's why I bought all these stones All these hopeful stones Stones All these hopeful stones Stones All these hopeful stones Cause I meant what I said And I won't say it again Trying to be quiet as rent No profit off descent Trying to listen close till I'm spent I'll guard us with our soul until we're spent But this is something you already know So I'll roll, 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 roll A light hair speaks and it's seen Thunk piece sunk too low from the steam all these heads, thousand blonde, walls won't want you to stop. So creep up on us and drop a thought, or a 60 old thought. Caustic hands, blunder moved into text. Pop ditties and love spirit, I'm not pretty. 
These walls will be standing in the air. They've been black, yellow, I've been told, they've been red. Thank you very much. story has a beginning, a middle and an end, though not necessarily in that order, is a convenient statement to make now as an entry point into my affected meanderings as I describe thought embryos searching for a way to become form. I struggle to find the threads to connect my random meanderings composed on my mobile phone at work, at the bar table just before court convenes, in bed before sleep or just after I awake on the tram, trying to find a way into the exhibition through a practice of creative writing. For example, here are my first recorded words. I have joined a writing group exploring new methods in writing about art. I have joined the ranks of creative non-fiction in search of lost time to explore ways of being less formulaic. Do I risk wasting time swimming in the murky waters of speculative subjectivity. I write words on the tram heading home after a workshop session as I listen intently to the other passengers, hoping that in recording simultaneously I could capture something random but uncannily relevant to my endeavour. What does it mean to write by entering into the expanded field? Throughout the first week, I punched into my mobile device first sentences in the hope that I find a way in. For example, on doubt and vulnerability allows audiences to engage with different forms, multiplicity of ideas, rather than convey specific concrete meanings. What if I find the works anemic? What if I reach the conclusion these practices have become ubiquitous or trite? How do I justify these criticisms without recourse to more conventional approaches, like writing about the artists, the works of art, without recourse to art history or critical theory? Should I be permitted to ask questions of each art object? What do you want from me? Is it, a, is it attention? To become attentive to what it is that you silently miss slash represent? Should you afford me the same presumption of ignorance and remain vigilant against the meanings that immediately form on the surface about me? To consummate and commune, to understand to be understood, to insist on the legitimacy of the sacred 
and the profane. Writing practices are much like exhibitions, valorizing rituals, transforming randomness into profound form. After all, art museums have a long connection with cathedrals built upon vaults supposedly containing the severed limbs of dead saints. To consummate and commune, to understand and to be understood, to struggle against the urge to mystify and then negate, to embrace creative writing about art less formulaic. on desire, writing, and methods of dissolving. To dissolve is to be infinite. To desire is to dissolve. There's a conflict between maintaining integrity and joyfully falling apart. And writing about art is a process of desiring. To move into the surface of a work, trying to find its core and the correct language of description, getting close and then moving right back and considering what does it all mean? to become absorbed in the details, cozying up to it. I want to know you, painting. Be in your void. Desire is characterized as a restlessness, agitated searching and futile striving. The Greek word eros, another name for desire, denotes want, lack or desire for that which is missing. This lack can be viewed as a whole, a void. To be in love or lust creates a gap in the body to take one's breath away, to leave a hole in the heart. To write on art is to fill a gap. The surface of writing is desire and action. Words jangled together, moving forward, sometimes luminescent and sometimes flat. To move and sink, to write and sink. In Umbera Wellman, two bodies are made up of swishing brushstrokes and shades of skin and browns for shadows. Five black fingers grasp their partner's upper arm like five twigs, their scratchiness incongruent to the rest of the mass. It's a grasp out of the void, a void of desire. The fingers are particular, the small details that you unexpectedly notice on a person, like an uneven toenail. All this amidst collapsing edges, collapsing boundaries. If desire is a shifting mass of energy which has no center, does it have an edge? I think of riding skirting edges of desire like edges of Brent Harris's bullseye voids with their elegance and anal precision. It's a recognition of both an edge and an abyss just out of reach. These paintings are like writing about testing belief, skirting around the void of existential questioning with the finitude of life and the infinity of death. The void here is almost accessed by words but ultimately lies beyond the edges of language. And Carson writes that eros is an issue of boundaries. Gaps are where desire is manifested and fostered. And the ultimate edge is the edge of the body. The boundary of flesh between you and me, she says. And it is only suddenly at the moment when I would dissolve that boundary, I realize I never can. Thanks, everyone. We're going to move into the other side of the um, gallery.
Okay, thanks everyone. I, I'm Lucinda Strawn, um, the convener of the uh, writing program, Doubting Writing, Writing Doubt. We're going to be moving through all the galleries, uh, hearing uh, writers. And if I could just ask you to be really mindful of not sticking to the walls because uh, we'll damage the artwork. So please do come forward. Um, you can come into this space here and... Um, yeah. Thank you, Shirley. Three, untitled, 2019. Fear of becoming a mother. Fear of never being happy. Fear of writing the same thing. Fear of never feeling at home. Fear of throwing away what's mine. Fear at being alone. Fear of being with people. Fear of never falling in love. Fear of letting down the people I love. Fear of always wanting more. Fear of being wrong. Fear of dying in Werribee. Fear of growing old. Fear of spending too much time on social media. Fear of men. Fear of not doing enough. Fear of never feeling enough. Fear of writing poetry. Fear of strange men on Twitter. Fear of getting it wrong. Of wasting time taking selfies. Of not being present of monotony, of repetition, of complacency, of losing control, of not being true to myself. Four, soft-boiled eggs, 2019. Me, 28. What if I overcook them or undercook them? What if I fail? Her, seven. It's okay if you fail, I'll eat anything. <laughs> Six. <clears throat> In a nondescript Sydney laneway, 2011. Paste, quick. Photo, quick. Hurry, as man tears down posters. Breathes down our backs. When in fact, these fears are sanctioned. Decade later, invite audience to share fears and project anonymously onto screen. Invite audience to take poster and recipe for glue. Say, if you put more sugar in, it will last longer. Eight, heart-shaped, 2019. The doctor removes a polyp from my cervix and pronounces me a new woman. I wish I could believe her. She refers me for an ultrasound. The doctor says I have a heart-shaped uterus. 
If an embryo attaches to the point that curves in, it may not receive enough blood. The doctor assures me many women with bicornate uterus carry their child for full term. I do not intend to have children. She says I am the wiser of the two of us. I do not believe her. Nine, fear of never being happy. I take a photo, black on white on burgundy and post on Insta, it, me, thank you. Next room. The benefit of the doubt. I doubt it, he said, when she dared express another way of imagining the world. Doubt can make us hard like a rock. Doubting this, doubting that. Never having the courage to entertain the absurd or unlikely. I was too embarrassed to admit when we started the workshop that I imagined licking things in the gallery. Faced with vulnerability and doubt, a canine quality crept forward, a literary critical lick of becoming dog. How does the art taste? Is it tasteful? Is this a furry, sloppy form of art criticism? No doubt, he said. Here we are in a big, rusty shell of an art doghouse. Barking acker. Rusty, the iron kelpie awkwardly poised on a plain of desert gravel. We are the growl of a dog's stomach. Shall we lick or howl? Let's see. Here is a roughly rectangular-shaped lump of basalt wearing underpants. The back of the pants are a bit dirty, as if the rock was put down in an unswept corner shortly before finding its way to a pristine plinth. Do the underpants render the rock more vulnerable than if it were naked? It becomes a kind of person rock, trying to hide the soft genital crevices it can't possess. How does one touch a rock like that? No touching here and especially no licking. But if I did lick it, could something soft, even if not genitals, be discovered? What would it taste like? A dusty corner? A cold earthiness? Perhaps a lick of the rock would offer the taste of deep time, the flavour of when its hardening happened, when the volcanic lava cooled so quickly it became one of the hardest of rocks. What we might taste is that it was once soft and super hot, perhaps more like the ooze of aroused genitals than I dared imagine. So here we are with a roughly rectangular bit of basalt in grubby underpants. It took us all the way back in time to the soft ooze of a volcanic eruption gone hard, lick that. 
What would the world become if we reimagined re it more often and tempered reality with it? Reality does have a temper and it's often grumpy, especially if it lacks imagination. Doubt can be hard, but it can also be soft, an opening onto imagining otherwise. An embarrassed, awkward vulnerability, both a lick and a howl. Herein lies the benefit of the doubt. Thank you. In the bookshop where I used to work, I buy a copy of Jung's Four Archetypes because it had a chapter entitled The Mother Complex, written in capitals. In Nenny Panagia's book, Dangerous Citizens, she interviews numerous Greeks about their memories of the moment the 1976 military coup started. One man recalls sitting at the kitchen table with his parents and his father getting up with such force that his drink spilled on the floor. The man says, so for me, the memory of how the junta happened is that of spilled milk on the kitchen floor. The shock of that moment brought into the domestic. There's no use crying over spilled milk, we're told. You exaggerate, Melody, my mother says. In my early 20s, I worked as a nanny for two young children. One day, when I was picking the little girl up from school, her teacher pulled me aside and told me that the girl had been caught with her classmate's pink tutu in her locker. It seemed perfectly clear to me that, that, that for that little girl, that tutu was not a tutu. That tutu represented so much more than its pink tulle. As we get older, we find ways of getting whatever our version of the tutu happens to be in a way that more adequately fits in with social conventions. We earn money so that we can buy it for ourselves, or perhaps we become artists or writers so that we can acquire it imaginatively. As children, before we learn what to do with our desires, we stuff them into a locker and pray that no one will notice. Someone always notices. In season four of Jill Soloway's Transparent, the character Lilla says to Sarah, secrets are the perfect stand-in for boundaries. Ah, yes, boundaries. The phone rings. It's my mother, though since her number always comes up, no caller ID, I never know if it's her calling or not. I answer, hello, Melody speaking, formal in case it's not her, but also to communicate if it is her, my annoyance at never knowing when she is calling. When I was about eight months pregnant, I remember telling a friend that I wouldn't survive the loss of, the loss of my child at that late stage. And I remember her looking me in the eyes and saying, of course you would. Consider Tali Mandini's shit mother paintings where the body of the mother is represented as literal shit. We know that for the first few months of a child's life, they do not understand the boundary of their bodies. Somehow or other, everything I write ends up being about my mother. There is a passage in Circumfession where Derrida recounts when his mother was dying in hospital and no longer recognised him. 
He describes an exchange with his mother where he asks her if she's in pain. She says yes. And then he asks where it hurts. She replies, I have a pain in my mother. Thank you. Thank you. And um, please follow me into the next gallery. Two rows of teeth in lockjaw. What is that taste on the back of your tongue? Metallic. Zip descends, molar by molar, each hook to its hollow. Arigure writes, more than other senses, the eye objectifies and masters. It sets at a distance, maintains the distance. In our culture, the predominance of the look over smell, taste, touch, hearing, has brought about an impoverishment of bodily relations. The moment dominates, the look dominates, the body loses its materiality. Unzip the box, take an envelope, read the question inside. If you want to, later, write down your answer anonymously and put it back. Zip up the box. When zippered trousers caught on, they were meant to stop the possibility of unintentional and embarrassing disarray. Disarray as a verb means to bring disorder to. Le sujet supposé savoir is the subject who is supposed to know. But writing about reading says reading can be like striptease. There is the shared suspense at the unveiling, and both processes share certain rules. Sped up or slowed down, there must be no disarray. But knowing is not a static category. A savoir, to know, is only possible as an ideal. As soon as one tries to get close to it, it becomes ungraspable. Fools and fanatics know, each hook to its hollow. Anxieties fear without an object, or an object yet. Anxiety produces capitalist subjects, insatiable, isolated, suggestible. Do you feel your scalp start to prickle? Are you seen? Are you making yourself a spectacle? Do they know? They cannot know. If you cut me open, I know you would find something broken, something crooked. The zipper sticks. I pull too hard. The fabric is chewed. People in traumatized communities struggle profoundly loving one another. Last year, I fell in love in New York City, even though I know that there are no good surprises and everything you can do to me, I can do first and worse. Somehow, I forgot. Harlem, summer steamed behind us, a caterwaul. The bathroom's filthy. The rats ride drunk on brunch scraps and Dunkin' Donuts from downstairs. 
When will you come here to me, smell the wattle? When will the sea wash our cup in a far-flung empire's upside-down sun? You don't answer through your Kaddish. Do you remember, I text, our bodies in one breath filled us both like your fist inside me, my tongue in you. Christmas and the streets are damp and baited. You've left me on red. I want to touch again your great golden crown, but your buzz is broken and you don't pick up your phone. The moment, the eye, the screen, the surface, smooth where I am sticky, air-conditioned flavour, zip descends, molar by molar, I am disarrayed. Repeat. They refuse to play out of fear, no doubt. In the question, take a short A question is not a circle. When does a question become still? They refuse to play out of fear, no doubt. Hux has been very rude lately. Anna thinks one of our neighbors is feeding him. Izzy's house hunt seems to be getting serious. She's finding all kinds of fruit trees in Brunswick. Mitch had another friend from Perth visit, Tim someone. Friendly, very tall, liked clubbing. Cam brought Julia to the house dinner. It was nice to meet her properly. She's loud charming. Nick's new glasses are giving him a headache. I texted him, palm tree, butterfly, sad face. My mother is relieved. I finally got Medicare. I think I'll be able to have a civilized conversation, but I'll tell her to tell Rafi. He needs to call me. It's been over a month. Lily and Ardit say they're coming in early September. I'll believe them when I see them. Bonnie will be here in time for Sagittarius, season with its pollen. I had a dream I got kicked out of my PhD for writing too much about Jacob, too humid, but I haven't even. Tiffany, Hazel, my father, all sent me photos of the mist in Auckland. How to bring it here will be the trick. Dear homeowner, I am writing to you as an admirer of the porcelain cabbage which sits in the square window of the doorless brick wall of your house. It's green and white, kind of a curved leaf, so it looks almost like a wave, trapped in the fibrous glaze of its cabbageness. I love the porcelain cabbage which sits in your window, and I want to tell you that when I first saw it around April of this year, I loved it especially. It used to sit in the proud center of your window like the pale green eye of a modernist cyclops. It was so enchanting. But your porcelain cabbage no longer has the middle spot. 
It's been moved to the side and replaced by a blankness, which I can only imagine is the product of the kind of restless indecision which characterizes many small but ultimately profound changes. I go past your house on the bus sometimes and keep an eye out to see if you've moved it back. Maybe from the inside it looks better placed to the side like that. I just can't help but feel, though, that it would be nicer send a stronger message in the center. I've never sent an anonymous letter. I've never cared so deeply for porcelain. But there is something about the way you keep the window empty of anything but the cabbage that makes me think you are someone who cares about the emotional force of aesthetic detail. Even though I don't like it in its current position, seeing the porcelain cabbage in your window when I go past on the bus makes me smile and gives me a resigned satisfaction knowing that so much can so easily change within the space of approximately one foot. I've got numbers on my side, literally. I count everything. I know everybody's birthday. This Wednesday, we'll be meeting seven with Francesca and Ronnie, and I'll have written six long texts and four short texts and three texts which no one will read. I've already got two new ones to send through. Every day is an anniversary of something. I was particularly aware of May 22nd. That was Bonnie. It was also another thing. And the third day of every month is conspicuous. Today is a 29th, nothing special on. August 21st will be funny. I have a speaking engagement with the public, and it will be Jacob's birthday. That's information I don't want, but I have it because I have a head for memorizing my dates. I remember August 21st of last year, I was nervous. I had an exhibition starting the next day, which involved 21 delicate sheets of paper. I had to sellotape delicately to the wall 42 times. Now it's the 30th, and it was two weeks ago that I wrote a particularly heavy poem. I think I've moved on. It was one week ago now that I read a review of Maggie Nelson it decided her work would fail in the hands of a more humid writer. The impression I have is that Maggie Nelson can't do anything wrong, but what life gets articulated rightly when air holds water? I'm always breathing too closely into the mirror, fogging up and curling. Yes, fair enough. And it is so hard to learn something like how to be more relaxed because it seems so abstract. But you are doing well. I reckon picture your anxiety as the possessed zombie in episode four, and you are about to fly out the window wearing a stunning flowing outfit unlike any regular hospital gown, and you slide with great agility onto the grass outside in the light rain, and the bandage covering your eyes unwraps itself elegantly, and knife in hand, you slay the zombie and kill the weakness in yourself. And then the two years for which you've been asleep replay like a film. I have been coming to visit you every day with a new bouquet of flowers, and when it rains, the droplets gather on the plastic wrapping, reminding you of spring, even in winter.
If everyone would like to um, take a seat or gather around the seating bank. Thank you. That concludes our readings. Would you thank our writers, please? Just before we start um, a Q&A and discussion, um, if you did receive one of Yoko's stones, um, could you please um, return them? We'll come and pick them up. Or return them to Yoko, yeah. Yeah, if you did receive, if you're holding a stone, please give it back, they're precious. But feel free to pass it around, yeah. And each of them has a um, phrase on it. So, uh, that was wonderful. Thank you. Can we thank the writers again? That was great. Um, yeah, so as I, as I said before, um, I'm Lucinda Straw and I've convened this um, wonderful group of writers um, in partnership with Adrienne Howard from ACCA and I'm from the non-fiction lab at RMIT. Um, and... This is the second iteration of a writing program that began last year called Writing in the Expanded Field. And um, one of the key um, questions we've been thinking about in this program is just very simply, how do we as writers change our position with regard to writing in, with art or from art or from the exhibition themes rather than about. Um, and that kind of very simple shift has produced this range of responses that you've seen um, tonight. Um, there was no uh, set kind of um, rules, if you, you know, if I can put it that way. Each of these writers comes from a really different um, perspective and background and the program really allows all these writers to uh, explore their own responses from a range of positions from poetic to um, as we saw you know enacted and movement based or musical or um, we explore as we go and um, we see uh, where we end up so Really wonderful reading. Thanks again, everybody. And I just also wanted to say, we'll open um, to questions, and I also wanted to um, let you know that these works are excerpted from longer pieces that will be published in a digital publication that um, will be finished by the end of the year, around October and November. And... One of the things that we really enjoy with this collaboration with ACCA is the move into dimensionality with writing. So we get that within these readings in the space. Um, we have an element of dimensionality of writing off the page and that will kind of be enabled as well by the digital publication of these works. And the digital publication will be co-designed. We'll have you know, more collaboration about how we want to actually um, bring that together. But I'd like to just open the floor to questions for our writers. Um, would anyone? I think, and Adrienne is floating around. 
with a Thanks so much. All of the readings were so beautiful. And uh, I brought to mind a book of George Steiner's that I read one time called Real Presences. And in the first chapter, he imagines a city where there is no critical writing, uh, that uh, the only acceptable response to a work of art is to make another work of art in response. And this is the first time that I've really experienced that um, in, a, in a direct sense. And it was incredibly moving for me as a listener. And I wondered if there um, was a shift that any of the writers ex uh, experienced uh, from a position of critiquing to a position of engagement and creative response. Oh, cut your head. Hey. Um, just quickly, uh, something that was very uh, paradigm shifting for me was the, the thought of, as Lucinda just mentioned, speaking from work rather than about work, uh, kind of being explicit about that type of position and really um, running it home with meditative practices that we did and such was, yeah, an opportunity to shift. And that was fundamental for me. Whole idea of the expanded field, pretty big, pretty big influence for me in the last couple of months. Great times. Thanks. Um, thanks for your question. I struggled for a while to respond to the work because I felt like it had to be, actually I didn't know what I wanted to write. So I went on this really great guided tour by Beatrice at Eka. And then I started looking at the edges of those prints and sort of the imperfections there. And then I kind of realized that my work was allowed to be imperfect. And I've been a writer for a few years now and I thought I would know this, but it's kind of like a lesson you have to learn every single time. Um, and my background's in memoirs, so I don't generally write poetry. So as one of the lines in my poem was fear of writing poetry. So I literally decided to you know, tackle that fear. So yeah, thank you. Um, so, for me, in response to your question, um, I'm, I don't generally write um, about other people's art, um, and I sort of didn't do that here either. Um, for me, it was kind of, I sort of started the project by wanting to kind of write around my relationship to objects which um, sort of move me in some way. Um, and then from that, it kind of became about sort of just engaging with the general kind of premise of the show, which is vulnerability and doubt. So that's kind of how it um, flourished for me um, in my process. I, um, I tried to take some kind of oblique approach to the work and the exhibition uh, itself as text. So I wrote a score for, um, there's 10 of us, for 10 voices in 19 numbered fragments. Um, 
Um, and I used the words and phrases of um, other writers like Maggie Nelson um, and Carson, Joan Didion, Natalie Saru, um, Sappho, also the voices from the exhibition catalogue text um, as a kind of form of dispersed authorship. Um, so this idea of positionality, I guess in a way refusing that uh, or restating that in a decentered way. Um, as uh, a sort of a series of asides to the main text of the exhibition. Would it be okay to hear from everyone? It would, that's a good, it's such a great question. Does everyone know? Does anyone? I, I think I just wanted to say um, it's really nice to hear that it was moving, it was moving for me as a participant as well, and um, it's really nice to have that feedback. So thank you for being here and, and for, um, for giving us that space to, um, to, to hear what it's like to perform these works. So it's kind of not really an answer to the question. But. I just might add that I think one of the beauties that, and we did talk about this a little bit, of the theme of the show was that like, whenever you produce anything, it's up for critique. Um, and we were doing that too. But the thing is that because the show was about vulnerability and doubt, we thought, well, it doesn't really matter if we fail, if you like, like if, we're all, if we feel awkward, if we trip, if, it, if it, things fall over, that kind of vulnerability would be perfect. And so everybody <laughs> was a little bit um, able to relax, I think. And I think people did become, I mean, I was pretty moved by many people's pieces and so it, I think it allowed people to open up quite quite in quite sometimes quite raw ways. Yeah can I just add there that one of the key things about the theme of the exhibition which which makes it perfect um, for this program is that I, that, that kind of um, critical writing position um, I sometimes think of as a kind of invulnerable or that kind of objective um, writing position is, you know, it's, an in, it's a kind of an invulnerable, invulnerable position, even though it's difficult to do and, um, you know, you're very vulnerable while you're writing anything. But engaging vulnerability and doubt, I suppose, you know, everyone was really encouraged to kind of put themselves on the page more and... Um, you know, and engage that vulnerability that is always uh, a part of writing. Um, so opening up, yeah, opening up that, um, yeah, the vulnerability that's always there in any kind of writing attempt, I would say. Um, who else wants to say anything on that? Anna, do you want to? Uh, thank you for your question. I really appreciate it as well. I haven't read what you um, referenced, but... I was thinking a lot about ekphrasis um, as a poet and fiction writer generally. So I was looking for something that I think I, I respond to analogy and metaphor. And when I saw Charlie Sofo's zipper work, it just yeah, really resonated with me. And um, yeah, it was a great brief, obviously. You know, if you stuff it up, you just like it was intentional vulnerability. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I suppose I'm from that conventional position of writing 
in a kind of critical and journalistic way. Um, I feel I'm kind of expanding though to maybe still write in an essay form but like critique myself and like how I'm writing um, but then opening it up to become a bit looser and you know a bit more poetic and a bit more of an art form in itself so I'm still kind of in a safe space. <laughs> Okay. Oh no. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm an academic, so, um, but I never thought myself as a writer. Uh, I, I kind of write because I have to, kind of, it's my job. Um, uh, and so um, the excuse that I had in joining this program was to try and write things that I don't normally write about. And one of the curiosities I had was about our relationship with non-human, um, hence the stone, and what voice means and how we listen. Um, and I'm not sure whether I'm there yet, but at least this is my toe into that um, thing. So, Kuli, so did you want to say? I'm a lawyer by trade. I'm a barrister. I'm required to communicate and to be understood. I have a formulaic approach to that, writing affidavits, making submissions, etc. I practice the art of reasonable doubt, the dark art of reasonable doubt. I'm also a student, a master, Masters of Art curating student, and I write exhibition reviews. I've got to assume that there's an audience that wants to know about the art that I'm describing. I've got to assume, well, I, I find myself wanting to assume an authoritative voice. Taking part in this workshop is allowing me to realize that there are multiple ways of writing about and talking about art singing about art, not talking about art, uh, being vulnerable and, 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 and um, bringing in your own personal history that the artwork uh, may um, conjure up as worthy of talking about. So um, in taking part in this workshop, I am learning from my colleagues here and letting myself trust that there are a multiple that there are multiplicity of ways of engaging talking and understanding art we've gone is it have we gone through everyone yeah another question Um, as someone who is absolutely terrified of public speaking, I just wanted to know how, if there was a particular approach from writers to the fact that the culmination of this workshop was a public performance. I'm speaking their words out loud to a group of general public. Did you hear that? How did you all feel about the public performance aspect as writers? Um... I don't, I didn't really think about it um, until it was 
upon us. <laughs> I sort of, I don't know. Um, because I guess this, is, this isn't the end of the workshop, so I think for me, um, I, I, I just didn't really think about it that much. Thank you, that's a great question. I thought about it a lot, actually. Um, I, there was a refrain in the first draft that I wrote, which is, this is not a performance, because I was thinking about what do you do when you read a, a piece of writing in a gallery space, and how do you, um, you know, that just is immediately performative. Um, and there was all kinds of desires to kind of, um, to refuse that. Uh, I wanted to read behind a screen at one point or um, to turn into the corner or something. And even as I was reading, I, I didn't feel particularly comfortable physically, <laughs> um, but which is something to work on. But, but yeah, so I think it's a good question and I think it's particularly relevant to uh, writing in, so reading in a, in a gallery space. Um, and there's, there's no real solution to it. It is a performance. Um, it is an embodied kind of... Um, experience and the fact that there are the number of you here today also influences how we read and and be in this space as well. If there'd been lesser people, like, you know, fewer people or more people or whatever. So, um, so it's in that way. I think it's kind of a bit of a dialogue as well somehow. Thank you. Um, um, I think I think for me it actually did an impact on what I wrote uh, because I knew we were going to be doing that and because. I was really interested in, I'm really interested in, like Yoko, in non-human agency and so the things in the gallery I and mean, then also the gallery itself seemed like um, I wanted to draw attention to their presence as things in the space in which I was speaking so and to speak to them a little um, and to make them sort of, to make their, to extend their presence beyond uh, what might be immediately evident. So it did kind of really impact on, like if I think if I wasn't going to be speaking it out loud, um, I probably wouldn't have been so concerned with that presence uh, of, this, in, of the space and where we were. I, I was thinking about not reading, I was thinking about um, having a conversation, a conversation with the work, a conversation with you, and um, that time when the uh, reading space becomes a listening space, so it's as much about reading as it is about listening. Yeah, we, I might, we've probably got time for one more question, um, and the bar's open, so is there one more question? Uh, writing is normally considered a very, well, I consider a fairly solitary uh, activity. Here you are trying to put together a piece as a group almost. How did that change the way you wrote? Did you hear that? How did the collective change the way that you wrote as opposed to the solitary um, experience of writing? Sorry. Um, I just said we didn't really write collectively. We worked as a group. We worked together and, um, and read each other's work and um, uh, explored that space. And, and then I guess the, the collective activity, the first kind of 
emanation of that is here now, and so we haven't quite reflected on that, or well, I haven't quite reflected on that. But in terms of my own work, I, I, mean, I am interested in very much in that co-authorship and that collective uh, sense of listening. Um, yeah. That was a hard question. I think the writing pieces are individual at this stage. The performance was developed as a collective, and um, the workshop is ongoing, uh, during which we will, I believe, influence each other, and it will be interesting uh, to see what comes out of the uh, collective experience. Um, so I'm a, I'm a sort of designer that's come, come into an academic field. Um, and I was kind of re reflecting on how the way I wrote was quite similar to how I design in a, in a sense of, of being Im immersed in this amazing group of people, which I think is the most amazing experience that, I, that I've had, is that you don't really know where your ideas stop and where theirs end. And as soon as we started reading each other's work and commenting on it, that, that was really quite powerful for me. Um, and that, that I really relate that to how I design. I'm sure that's not just in design, but creative practice in general, that um, you're inspired and you're also invigorated by and challenged by the things that people say, and then you, and to the point where you don't really know whether, the, where those thoughts come mm -hmm. from in the first place. So um, I'm really interested in the not particularly the separation of the, of the individual's practice or the, like, you know, boundaries around ownership. I know they're important, for, but for me, I wanted to be a sponge and nick ideas as much as possible and incorporate them into mine and, um, you know, um, but in an ethical way. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say something on that? So I've been reflecting on this a little bit because... Um, uh, I, you know, this program um, is really super it, uh, inconvening and I've really brought to it the ethic of the non-fiction lab. And the non-fiction lab, you know, at RMIT, we have a very strong kind of collective um, relationship with each other. And it, thinking about how we're running this actually made me think of my colleague Francesca's RICE um, collective workshopping RICE program, which is... Similar, it's completely kind of unconscious, but I realise we're kind of doing a similar thing with like bringing writers together to kind of write and workshop together, which is quite a different kind of model from like if if we wanted, you know, like if if I wanted to do like a journal and just said, you know, send in your pieces in response to the show, you know, you get a whole bunch of pieces from different kinds of writers, but it would be a completely different thing, actually, from really just sitting in the room together and generating things together and just kind of feeling this, and to go to the expanded field or the kind of spatial metaphor, you know, feeling the kind of relation or the, the kind of shape of us in relation to each other. And I think that's actually a really different model from just, say, you know, like an editor sitting in an office somewhere and just receiving singular pieces. Um, so I think the collective is um, quite central but very subtle. Yeah, it's not like we don't kind of 
um, yeah, there's no kind of um, set instructions around it, but to me it would be a really different thing if we hadn't all, all sat together from, from day one, I think. That's my feeling, so... I was just going to follow on one you were talking, listen to that I was reminded of the very start of the workshop and, and that we've talked a lot about when we started, Lucinda had us all sit around and close our eyes for some time and she read. And I think, um, I actually think that laid seeds that led to um, quite a lot of, um, they were they're all individual pieces, but I think there's actually quite a lot of um, connections across them and also a, a sort of a comfort the related to the vulnerability that came from that first moment or first, how, I can't remember how many minutes it was, <laughs> but uh, it was a really, I think it was a really important opening move that, uh, that, and that was a collective experience and that we kind of unfolded from there. Mm. But it's also quite unconscious. This is the last thing I'll say. Like, it's also quite unconscious, so none of it's, you know, it's, it's an evolving thing. And one, in the, one, one um, method that is very strong um, in the workshop and in a, with a lot of my, my own work and my colleagues in the nonfiction lab is the idea of essaying, which is finding out the form as you go. So finding form as you go, which means that you find form as you go. You, yeah. Would anyone like to make one last statement before we have a drink? I'd just like to say thank you. Thank you to everyone, but especially to Jacinta, to RMIT Nonfiction Lab, to Adrian and to Max and to all the other people at ACCA. Um, and maybe I'm speaking on behalf of all of us, if that's um, okay with everyone, just to say thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Martina. Thank you.